Thank you. Band. Good morning, everyone. Have a seat. My name's Josh, and um, uh, if I haven't met you, it's really great to, to have you here this morning with us, this last Sunday before Christmas. You guys are doing well to be here, I reckon. I reckon uh, you have prepared well. Prepared ye well the way of the uh, bearded one who manages somehow to uh, get outside of space and time and comes bearing gifts. You know the person that I'm talking about, right? A little, uh, a little tester there for the sheep and the goats. Those of you who thought Santa Claus, you sit on that side. And um, those who know that I was talking about Jesus, well, welcome to the club. You know, for a good part of his life, Johnny Cash wore black um, as as a as a symbol of 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 solidarity with the poor and the oppressed. Uh, in the late 80s, Morrissey sang that he wore black on the outside because black was how he feels on the inside. Um, but. While it might look like uh, Sharon and Graham and I have uh, had some sort of plan to wear black this morning, um, I know them both well enough and myself well enough to assure you that it's just because there were no other clean clothes on the rack. (laughs) (laughs) So, nothing profound. For the majority of the time that my wife, Sharon, and I lived in um, Canada, we lived in a neighbourhood just uh, adjacent to um, what what is known as the poorest neighbourhood in North America. And uh, that might sound a bit strange to you that the poorest neighbourhood in North America is is in Canada, a a little unexpected, but... uh, I can sort of say from uh, my personal experience that rings true. Sharon and I, we spent some time uh, going through uh, the shanty town uh, that sort of surrounds Mexico City, that great megalopolis of, of Northern America. We stayed in Midtown, New Orleans, uh, just shortly after Hurricane Katrina. And I can say that in both of those places, while there is poverty uh, and desolation, uh, they didn't touch the experience that I had of Vancouver's uh, downtown east side. Uh, the main junction of the downtown east side is the connection of the streets, the crossing of the streets, Main and Hastings Street, uh, unfondly referred to uh, in the city as pain and wastings. Uh, Main and Hastings referred to as pain and wastings. And if you walk through that neighbourhood, as um, I did many times, uh, you're likely to see at this crossing street prostitutes. Uh, You're likely to see people selling on sort of makeshift uh, stalls on the side of the road, selling stuff that they've boosted from the local pharmacy or supermarket the sorts of stuff that's easy to pinch but you can get good money back for, like razor blades, those Gillette Mac 3 razor blades. I think they're more expensive uh, in weight than gold is. Um, you're likely to see people pushing shopping trolleys with copper that they've stripped out of abandoned buildings. Uh, you'll see uh, the poorest people that you'll find 
in Canada. And there's a variety of complicated reasons why people find themselves living in the downtown east side. Uh, in tents or in dope houses. Um, but one common denominator for most people in the downtown east side is they've got an opioid addiction. And that might be uh, the, the, the old grandmother heroin or her nasty uh, stepdaughter fentanyl, um, sort of synthesised opioid that has really taken over on the streets. But uh, you, you're looking at people who, whose addiction has taken them to that place of poverty and desolation. And um, if you spend enough time with opioid addicts, sooner or later, you will hear this phrase, I'll know when I'm done. Anyone who's worked uh, in drug rehabilitation and has some experience of those who we might call junkies will know this phrase, I'll know when I'm done. Heroin and fentanyl are so powerfully addictive uh, that most people have suffered under their addiction and gotten to a point where they try some sort of rehabilitation. And there's a lot of resources, say, in the downtown east side available to addicts to try and get their way out of it, to be rehabilitated. The government and all sorts of charity groups try and offer pathways out of that destructive lifestyle. But people fall straight back in. Um, many die uh, behind dumpsters in the back alleys of the downtown east side. But when you do hear about an addict that has kicked it and finally made their way out, they talk about reaching this moment where they realise they're just done. They're done. And unless you reach that moment of being absolutely done, you are not going to kick your dope habit. You're going to fall back into it. And so junkies say, I'll know when I'm done. They can have no exact sort of time frame in mind. They, they probably realise, many of them, that they're going to be there in the hole for years more. But there's hope that this day will come where they will know that they're done. And what's so confronting about hearing an addict of this sort say, I'll know when I'm done, is that this phrase can come out of mouths missing many teeth. Because this kind of addiction leads to neglect, leads to a kind of cellular, cellular breakdown in, in the addict's body, so their circulation isn't working properly, they're not healing properly, they're not eating properly, many of them are barely sleeping. This phrase can come out of a mouth that is a sort of scab-encrusted set of lips and a scabby face for the same reasons. You can injure yourself and it cannot heal properly. You see addicts with scabs on their faces, on their bodies. This phrase can come out of the mouth of someone, a man or a woman who's had more than one child taken off them by social security. This phrase can come out of the mouth of someone who has burned their bridges with their family. This phrase can come out of the mouth of someone who is selling their body on the streets for 
20 30 $40 a pop. Some of the meanest streets out. This phrase can come out of the mouth of someone who's probably reckoned with the fact that they might well die from exposure during the winter, sleeping in a tent in sub-zero temperatures, or from overdosing. I'll know when I'm done. It's enough to make you question the wisdom of a God who's got a thing about poverty. I don't know if you've picked this up. People talk about God's preferential option for the poor, as though God somehow favours the poor. When I've walked those poor streets, it's been a wonder and a mystery to me because they've probably been the streets that have most elicited in me a cry of, God, where are you? What are you doing? Are you supposed to be here? Is this what your preferential treatment looks like? You might know Jesus' words, though, his most famous sermon. Blessed are you when you are poor, when you hunger, when you weep. You might have been reading through Luke's Gospel. Uh, We've preached through it this Advent. You might remember Mary's words where she says, I'm blessed by God. The Mighty One has done great things. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has lifted up the poor, the rich. He has sent away empty. What's going on there? It made me think as I was pondering these things this week of a story that Chris mentioned in his sermon last week, and it's a story that many of us will know well, a story of a father and two sons. The younger son approaches his father and asks his father to cash out his inheritance so he can cash it in. And it says that he set off for a distant country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And when it was all gone, it says a famine fell on the land that he had rejected his father for and he began to be in need. You know the story. He began to be in need, and he finds himself in a situation for a Jewish man probably about as close to street prostitution as we could imagine. He's living, tending the hogs of some wealthy pagan, unclean, ceremonially unclean animals, Animals that would sort of taint him spiritually. So desolate has his situation become that he finds himself even eating their food. And he comes to that moment of knowing that he's done. He's done. He's done. And he realises, I'd be better off being a servant or a slave in my father's house than being here in this pig pen and so beautifully I mean such a compelling story he travels back and uh, it comes out of Luke chapter 10 I believe it says that uh, while he was still a long way off his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him, rushes out to greet him on the road, hugs him. We don't have time to go into the significance of this culturally, but it was profound. His father welcomes him back in to the family and throws an amazing feast and party for him. And while we would love to end the story there, those of us who have engaged with it, just a little bit of depth, we know that the story doesn't end there. We know that the older brother, who stayed behind and faithfully worked on his father's farm, comes in from the fields, sees the great party happening, hears that his brother has come home, and it says he doesn't enter in. He dwells there on the threshold. He's angry with his father. His father comes to him and says, your brother's come home. Come and join the party. And he says, I've been here the whole time, working. He never threw a party for me. He's angry and he refuses to go in. Quite a harrowing way for Jesus to end that story. When we think about the, the sort of the image and language of the feast that we've been engaging with recently, that the feast is a picture of God's end of history, of the communion that he desires to bring us into with him, of the celebration, of the reward of relationship with him, of faithfulness. The son who stayed home and did the right thing doesn't enter in. One of the things that I appreciate about this parable of Jesus, this story of Jesus, as I think about it, is it helps me to understand that there's different types of need, right? The younger son, the prodigal, is so aware of his need in that pigsty, he realises that he's done. He's done. He's got no other option. He's going to go and throw himself at the mercy of his father. But the picture of the older brother is also a picture of a kind of poverty and alienation, isn't it? He lives in some comfort, it would seem. His father is a man of means. He lives in proximity to his father. And yet, this story illustrates for us that it's possible to be in proximity, to be in material comfort and wealth, and somehow to have a kind of spiritual poverty on oneself. And I think this rings true to me as I grapple with ministering in this neighbourhood, growing up in this neighbourhood, a traditionally blue collar neighbourhood. Now, as I walk over this hill on the way to work in the morning, I walk past houses that the dumpy ones cost almost a million dollars. I don't know how much the good ones cost. And as I ask what it means to be poor in Alderley, 4051, I realise that there are these different types of poverty. There are many people in the best real estate around here who are poor, maybe poor in a way a bit like the way that the older brother is poor. 
Some of the feedback I got from the last sermon was I talked about getting in a DD. And Sharon said, most people don't know what a DD is. It's like a rideshare thing, like Uber, right? Where you, someone drives their private car and uh, you pay them to give you a lift. I got in one recently, a uh, really nice vehicle, well-dressed young guy. And he was telling me that he was a FIFO worker, fairly newly married FIFO, fly in, fly out, thanks. Uh, thank you for that. Live, live feedback's good, I think, <laughs> to a point. And, um, and he was saying what a strain it was on his marriage that you know he was away three weeks of the month, basically. His wife was pregnant. Um, and I said, well, you know, when the baby comes, do, do you think, that, will your work situation change? He's like, no, I, I'm not out yet. It was a similar thing to the junkie. I'll know when I'm done. <laughs> just a, probably just a bit more that they had to save for the mortgage. Uh, he's home for a week, a month, and he's driving an Uber on a Saturday night, right? No kids. But maybe not that different from me and you. Maybe if we are older brothers, if we are rich, and I'd say uh, if we sort of just took an average, we're rich in this congregation. Maybe that's, that's our trap, that we don't know when we're done. And this season can be like that. For me, it's like another great meal. I don't think I can handle another great meal. I'm tired of food, and it's not even happened yet. Maybe there's a kind of neediness there. Maybe our problem, if we're rich, our problem, if we're older brothers, is we don't necessarily know when we're done. And perhaps that's the gift of poverty. So we've been talking this Advent about God saying, come at Christmas time. That Christmas is an invitation into something. And so God said to Mary, come and give birth to the Messiah, you grubby young woman from Nazareth. I choose you. You are blessed. God says to those stinky shepherds, the social sort of outliers in the hills around Israel's towns and cities, come. Come find yourself at the centre of this thing that I am doing. He said to the Magi, as Chris reminded us last weekend, you who are outside of the nation of Israel, come and see a root spring up out of the stump of Jesse. Come and be a part of what God is doing through people. He was once doing it through the Jews, but now he wants to do it through everyone. Come. Come to what, though, was my question this week, I realised. We've structured the whole of this Advent thing about God saying a come. What exactly is he saying come to? It would have been good to work that out before. I'm being a little bit cheeky there. But I was looking again at Luke's Gospel particularly, because that's where we've been. What is God inviting us into? What is he saying come into? Maybe there's some clues in the ministry of Jesus. And I was reading 
Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, and Chris mentioned this story last week as well, in his hometown, goes to synagogue, steps up to read, quoting the prophet Isaiah. What does he say? There's a theme here. Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There's that poor thing. But also, he goes on, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That last line just stuck out to me in a new way this week. I was thinking about it. The year of the Lord's favour. Well, he's talking about Jubilee, right? And if you know anything about the practice of uh, Jewish religion and their beliefs, uh, they've got this thing that's a big deal, uh, a bigger deal than maybe we realise as non-Jews. Sabbath or Shabbat, right? A rest. This is a big deal for those who were slaves under a foreign empire where there was no rest, where it was just work, 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 make a brick, make another brick, make another brick, make another brick, make another brick, with no end. So important was rest that God, after he had created the cosmos on the seventh day, rested. Rest is uh, a picture of God's intention for creation, that there would be shalom, there would be a sense of completeness. Sure, there would be work, but there would also be rest. And so much of the identity of these freed slaves, the Jews, was that God was forming them into a nation that was truly just and reflective of his character. And the Sabbath was the taproot for so much of the justice of Jewish society. Not only were these former slaves to rest from their work one day a week, but their slaves or servants were to rest as well. And in fact, the animals, if you've read the Torah, were also to rest. Uh, the, probably the, the most prominent uh, American rabbi of the last century, Rabbi Joshua Abram Heschel, he says that the Sabbath is a temple in time for the Jewish people. So the temple was a place where the Jews could meet with God, bring their offerings to God, experience something increased of God's presence. But we don't just need a place to do that as human beings. We need time. And so God said, this time is sacred. This time is holy. This time is a place and space where you can hear from me more strongly, where you can celebrate, where you can commune with your family, where you can plan and reflect all these things that you actually need to do as people, even if 21st century capitalism has put us slightly out of touch with that fact. A temple in time. You'll know that it doesn't just stop there, though it's not just about one day a week. There were actually Sabbath years. So the seventh year, like the seventh day, was a year of rest and the Jews would uh, have to refrain from, from tilling, from sowing and from reaping 
in their fields on that seventh year. Obviously, they're an agrarian people, and so their connection to the land is strong. Their well-being, their future, their identity is all tied up with the land. The land needs to rest as well. But it doesn't just stop with that seven-year cycle, right? The seventh of every one of those seven-year cycles represents a special kind of seventh year, the year of the Lord's favour, the year of Jubilee. So every 49 years, you come back to this year of the Lord's favour. And if you know anything about the year of Jubilee, it was a year where people were returned to their lands and their lands were returned to them, right? So if you hit hard times, you might have to sell some of your ancestral land. You may even have to, because of debt, sell yourself into um, sort of servitude with wealthier people. But every 50 years, God sets, hits reset on that. So your family have their land given back to them. You, if you've been in sort of indentured servitude, you are free to go back to your land. This says to me that God really cares about home, about people having a home. And so maybe what this whole year of the Lord's favour thing is about, what it is that God's inviting us into, is God saying, come home. Maybe the message that we need to hear this Christmas is that God says, come home. I'm going to ask the, the band to come up. We're going to um, take communion in a bit. Now, if there are some of us here this morning that identify in the story with the younger brother, if we feel poor, if we read about blessing for the poor and we think, yes, that's me. The Bible is good news. Christmas is good news. Jesus is good news. And I would say, if you're in that situation this morning where you identify as poor, where you identify with the younger brother sitting in that pigsty a long way from where you should be, a long way from God. Don't run. Don't walk. Run. <laughs> run home. Run home to God. Because Jesus is saying this is a picture of the kingdom that God is longing to have you home. And the story of Easter, the story of Scripture, is that Jesus says, have faith in me and whatever it is that separated you from the Father, we've got it. <laughs> we'll take care of it. Just come home. Just come home to God. There's a good chance that many of us, and I think I would include myself in this category, are more likely not to feel like we're particularly poor probably recognise on a global scale that we're doing all right. We probably recognise 
that if anything we might be a little bit more like an older brother when it comes to our situation in life. If there's even a chance that we might stop at the threshold of the feast and raise some objection to exactly who God's celebrating in there, I think we've got something to reckon with at this time of year. And as we come around the table this morning, my invitation to you would be to look in the next few days for that temple in time. Carve a little bit of space out to come to God and say, God, am I home? Am I home with you? Do I share your heart? Do I celebrate what you celebrate? Do I love who you love? If we find ourselves in a situation (laughs) where we have a revelation of the fact that maybe we're not where we should be, maybe we're not as home as we could be, maybe we don't share the Father's heart, Maybe we don't celebrate what he wants to celebrate. Maybe we don't love who he loves. Maybe we need to go home. (laughs) We need to look for the way home and go home. That's a challenge because there's no clear map there, really, if we're an older brother. There's a lot of introspection a lot of dealing with God, a lot of asking God what's going on ahead of us if we risk being in that place. But I want to challenge you this morning as we come into this Christmas, if that's you, ask the question, God, am I home with you? Do I share your heart? If you find God silent, in response to that. There's a chance that he may just be amongst those who know they're done. Who know they're done. Could you stand before we come and share communion? that you are concerned with those who really need you who know they need you who know that they're done the state of many of our lives God means that it's difficult for us to see that we're done we, um, we rely on the good works that we're doing we have some sense that we're righteous because of how we act, how we live, what we do. But Lord, we know it's not your will that any should miss out on the party. Lord, I pray that 
as we have moments this Christmas season to appreciate life, to appreciate family, to give and receive gifts, to, to feast. Lord, that you would grace us with little clues as to where it is we're supposed to be with you. Lord, I pray that you would show us the way home. Why don't you come and receive the elements?